Tony Hoagland, the poet who penned today's reading, died last fall of pancreatic cancer. He was an acclaimed poet with three published volumes of poetry to his credit, but he also wrote prose. One month before he died, he had an essay published in the literary magazine, The Sun, about his experience at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. He entitled his essay, The Cure for Racism is Cancer. Now, when I hear the word racism, I want to put a bag over my head and stumble around repeating, I am not a racist, I am not a racist. Unfortunately, acting like an ostrich doesn't make racism go away, nor does it take away my culpability as a white person for the racism that still exists and seems to be coming more brazen. So the idea of a cure for racism is intriguing. Let me read to you excerpts from his essay, and you can decide if you agree with him. I just shortened this for time and because some of his stuff is pretty graphic, so I left some of that stuff out. America, that old problem of yours, racism, I have a cure for it, get cancer. Come into these waiting rooms and clinics, the cold radiology units and the ICU cubicles. Take a walk down leukemia lane with a strange pain in your lower back and an uneasy sense of foreboding. Make an appointment for your CAT scan. Wonder what you are doing here among all these sick people. The retired telephone lineman, the grandmother, the junior high school soccer coach, the mother of three. Show up early on Friday morning and lay your forearm on the padded armrest of the phlebotomist's chair. Her name tag reads Natasha. She is clear-eyed and plump, and a pink plastic radio on her cubicle desk softly plays gospel at 8 a.m. Her fingernails are two inches long, and it is hard to believe that she can do her job with nails like that, but she's flawless and slips the needle into the hardened, scarred vein in the back of your hand. I wish there were other ways to cure your racism, America, but I don't see one. Frankly, your immune system seems to be the problem, installed by history and maintained by privilege. It is too robust, too entrenched to be undone by anything less than disaster. That's how it is for a lot of us. If you are white and doing well in America, a voice whispers to you incessantly, repeating that you deserve to be on top, that profit is your just reward. And it's not only white people who need the cancer cure. It's any person who thinks that someone of another religion, color, or background is somehow not indisputably equally human. The first time you park your car in the vast, cold cavern of the underground garage and step onto the elevator, you may feel alien and forsaken. Perhaps you'll feel that you have been singled out unfairly, plucked from your healthy life, and cast into this cruel ordeal. Walking through the lobby with a manila envelope of x-rays under your arm and a folder of lab reports and notes from your previous doctor, 
you'll sense the deep tremor of your animal fear, a barely audible uneasiness trickling up from somewhere inside you. But there is good news, too. As you pass one hallway after another, looking for Elevator B, you'll see that this place is full of people, riding the escalators, reading books and magazines, checking their phones near the coffee pots, and it will dawn on you that most of these people have cancer. In fact, it seems as if the whole world has cancer. With relief and dismay, you, you realize, I'm not special. Everybody here has cancer. The withered old Jewish lefty newspaper editor, the Latino landscape contractor with the stone roughened hands, the tough lesbian with the bleached blonde crew cut and the black leather jacket, and you will be cushioned and bolstered by the sheer number and variety of your fellows. This strange country of cancer, it turns out, is a true democracy, one more real than the nation that lies outside these walls and more authentic than the lofty statements of politicians, a democracy more incontrovertible than platitudes or aspiration. In the country of cancer, everyone is simultaneously a have and a have not. In this land, no citizens are protected by property, job description, prestige, and pretensions. They are not even protected by their prejudices. Neither money nor education, greed nor ambition can alter the facts. You are all simple cancer citizens bargaining for more life. It is true that this is not a country you ever planned to visit, much less move to. It is true that you may not have previously considered these people your compatriots, but now you have more in common with them than with your oldest childhood friends. You live together in the community of cancer. More good news. Now that you are sick, you have time to think. From this rocky promontory, you can contemplate the long history of your choices, your mistakes, your good luck, you can think about race, too, because most of the people who care for you will be non-white, often from other countries. You may be too sick to talk, but you can watch them and learn. Your attention is made keen by need and by your intimate dependence upon these inexhaustibly kind strangers. In the Republic of Cancer, you might have your prejudices shattered. In the rooms of this great citadel, patients of one color are cared for by people of other colors. In elevators and operating theaters, one accent meets another and, sometimes only after repetition, squeezes through the transom of comprehension. And when the nurse from the Philippines or the aide from Houston's Fifth Ward or the tech named Dev says, I'll pray for you, you are filled with gratitude for their compassion. This place bears a passing resemblance to those old photographs of Ellis Island. So many travelers come from afar, sitting with their papers and passports, hunched on wooden benches with luggage at their feet, waiting to find out if they will be admitted and advanced to the next stage of the process. Some of the travelers are dressed in pajamas and slippers. Some have on shiny blue tracksuits and Nikes. And some wear suits and ties as if being presentable will make a difference. 
the shabby and the affluent, the stoical and the anxious, the scrawny and the stout, the young and the aged. If we are tense or pace restlessly, it is because we are aware that we may, on short notice, be swiftly deported. And because of this, perhaps, our hearts soften. Here, where I do not expect it, I encounter decency, patience, compassion, warmth, and good humor. I remember the middle-aged nurse from Alabama, his calm southern twang and his beer belly, who stood firm one night, utterly unperturbed, while I vomited repeatedly as if a demon had seized control of my insides. With empathetic watchfulness, he administered the proper shot until I fell backward into a state of blessed relief. I remember the shift nurse with pale olive skin and thick eyebrows who brought me hot packs of damp folded towels heated in a microwave. She was so kind and respectful to me that after she departed, I blew her a kiss through the closed door. The historical record for tolerance for human learning is not promising. Yet I believe more than ever that at the bottom of each human being there is a reset button. Undeniably, it is difficult to get to. To reach it seems to require that the ego be demolished by circumstance. But reach that button and press it, and the world might reshape itself. Unfortunately, you must come here, America. You must lie on the gurney and be wheeled down miles of corridor under a sheet staring up at the perforated tile ceiling and the fluorescent lights, not knowing quite where you are. You have to ride a wheelchair to your date with the MRI machine, past women and men being wheeled in similar destinations. You will look into faces lined with fatigue and pain and anxiety. Often a glance will pass between you, a glance without the slightest veil of disguise or pretense. A look of recognition and solidarity. It is a strange communion, but that's what it is. So, America, I express this rather unconventional wish for you. I hope you get cancer. In order to change your mind, you must cross this threshold, enter a condition of helplessness, and experience the mysterious intimacy between the sick and their caregivers, between yourself and every person who is equally laid low. Come into the fields and meadows of the examination rooms. Come into the clean beds, to the infernal beeping of the monitors, to the lobbies and alcoves of this labyrinth. Look at the faces of those who are attending to you. Witness those who are silently passing by on their pilgrimage to surgery or radiology. Let the workers be fairly paid and valued, for their skills draw us together like the edges of a wound. As the machines tick, as the ventilators suck and heave and exhale, as the very ground beneath our feet starts to dissolve, we shall be changed. This particular essay created a lot of feedback for the magazine, The Sun. 
Many people wrote letters to the editor in response to it. A lot of the feedback was positive, but there was a lot of negative kickback as well. Several people pointed out that not all sick people receive the same care. We don't have universal health care in the United States. And even if we did, the wealthy would still find ways to receive Cadillac care. Certainly not everyone with cancer can afford to go to prestigious care centers such as MD Anderson, even if they have good health insurance. I could talk for a long time about the problems with health care in the U.S. It's one of my personal soapbox issues. Many of you have some horror stories about the health care system. I know I do. Some of you may have experienced cancer yourself, and your experience may not have been at a top-flight cancer center such as MD Anderson. But concerns about health care inequality, while valid, miss Tony Hoagland's point. Racism doesn't exist when everyone is on the same playing field. It doesn't matter what skin color someone has when everyone is pulling for the same goal, getting better or having a good death. The idea of different races didn't even exist until the 18th century in Europe when people from Africa began to be enslaved. There's always been slaves. The ancient Greeks had slaves, but they didn't have a word for race. The idea of race evolved so that the Europeans could have justification for enslaving a group of people whose physical appearance differed from theirs. We live in a society that is very concerned with race, but there really is no such thing as race. It's not a species difference as the so-called races can interbreed. It's not coded into our DNA. Kenneth K. Kidd, who is a professor of genetics at Yale University Medical School, denies that race is a genetic entity. In lectures, I now say that human races do not exist if by race you mean a discrete category, a qualitatively different subgroup of humanity, he said. When I look at DNA, I see no racial differences. There tend to be more DNA variations within each population group than between groups, and such variation is present broadly around the world within every population. This contradicts conventional wisdom of earlier in the century, when there was a tendency to think that populations were monomorphic with rare variants. Big words, guy is a professor, right? There are some genetic traits that are found predominantly in one group or another, such as sickle cell anemia is mostly found in black people, and cystic fibrosis is mostly found in white people. But in general, the races are indistinguishable by DNA analysis. Sometimes the races are even indistinguishable by appearance. What race is Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex? Is she black? because her mother is black? Is she white? Because her father is white. What race is her baby going to be? And you know what? The Brits don't care. I'm just saying. <laughs> I get the impression they don't care. Can anyone tell by looking at her what race she is? She's beautiful, and it doesn't matter what race she is. So if people could invent race, could we possibly 
uninvent race? Do we, as Mr. Hoagland believes, have a reset button that we could push to get rid of the idea of race and the prejudice and the discrimination once and for all? Knowing what we know about race, knowing that we are dealing with a framework that is not rooted in biology, how can we, as Tony Hoagland puts it, cross the threshold into a condition of helplessness without having to endure a terminal illness and do our part to dismantle the system? Let's find that reset button and push it with all the strength and determination we have. The congregation at UUCL has begun to search for the reset button, but it takes more than a couple of dozen people to really find it. How much easier would it be to hit the button than for all of us to have to deal with cancer? Amen. <laughs> <laughs>